prayer. Thank you so much. Okay, so we do have a lot to cover. D does this uh, volume seem too loud for anybody? If it is, could we adjust it a little bit? If it's not, then that, it's just me. Okay, um, we want to wrap this up today because we are at the end of this book of Obadiah Joel's study. And what we are doing is we are looking to see how this all fits into the timeline of events that we are looking at in the study of kings and prophets. So we don't want to lose sight of that because it's really easy to get stuck in the end times stuff that we've been looking at this week and last week and, the, and the, all these whole four weeks really have been all about the end of uh, the end times and the day of the Lord. And and yet there's a reason for it. Now, you tell me, what do you think is going on in the mind of God when in the midst of history where we drop in here, we've had Solomon, we've had the breakup of the kingdom, the northern and southern kingdoms. You all know this. I don't, I'm not going to go into detail because you know all this. But as those kings have been unfolding before us in parts one, two, and three of this study, we've seen in particular the northern kings, all of them doing evil in the sight of the Lord, meaning they weren't walking with God, they weren't obeying the covenant of God, they weren't even walking personally with the Lord in a way that was faithful. Many of them, quite, quite a few of them, as a matter of fact, did just the opposite. They were so far away from God that they were into some of the most heinous things. God said, of, for instance, of Ahab, he did more evil in the sight of the Lord than all those before him. That's pretty collective. Think about the collectiveness of all the evil that had already gone on, and he did even more than all of them before. That's, that's a huge statement. So Ahab has, it hasn't been gone long. I think we're into the, we're up to like Joash, I think it was, in the northern kingdom. Um, um, so we have that scenario in the north. They've got these golden calves in Bethel and Dan that they go to worship at, the majority of the people. The vast majority of the people at this, you know, very shortly after the split of the kingdom ceased to go to Jerusalem, even though they knew it was God's command that only in this place shall you worship me. Now, in the south, they're not much better. In the south, we had some good and some, and some but actually mostly evil, right? The few that were even good, um, a lot of them were only kind of sort of good or, or good for a while and then went bad. I mean, it was just an amazing thing to see these kings who had the knowledge of God. And as a matter of fact, although we've, I don't think it was in our study, but I do recall that one of the requirements of the kings of, of Israel was that they would actually themselves, each king would individually, personally handwrite the scriptures of the, of the Pentateuch, uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. They were to handwrite those out as a remembrance to the king of who they were, uh, who God was, who, how God had called them, what their mission was as a people, as a nation. Um, this, were, this was supposed to keep them adhering to their faith walk with God, and yet what happened? They didn't. So this is where we are in this unfolding history at this point and what we understand about the kings and prophets is how they fell away, where they've gone wrong, how there seems to be even just a half-heartedness on the part of even the ones 
that seemed to be good, even if they were called good, in a lot of ways they were, there was a lot of evil too in their lives. We saw that, for instance, in the king named Jehoshaphat. Do you remember Jehoshaphat? Does Jehoshaphat, that name, come up again this week in our study? <laughs> so there's a valley, the valley of Jehoshaphat. Now, what do we know about the valley of Jehoshaphat? Do we, do we know where it exactly is on a map according to any kind of historical references or whatever to it? All we can do is figure it out from the clues, though. Is there, is there actually a place that they've identified in um, records as to where the valley was? That valley of Jehoshaphat, is it identified by records, by Jewish records? Is it on a map anywhere? The answer is, shake your head, no. No, <laughs> it's not actually there. And yet, there's going to be some clues. We're going to look at that. But this king named Jehoshaphat, in the middle of this, this time frame that we've already studied, he was a king who did good in the eyes of the Lord, and yet he also committed some pretty heinous things. In that, for instance, he allowed his daughter to marry the son of the king of Ahab, joining the northern and southern kingdoms back into one house, which God had judged and had split himself, right? So then God had to come along and fix that mess, right? So now here we are, past all those kinds of things, of the good and the bad and the evil and, and the things that, that uh, Israel had been doing that failed their God, and then here comes Obadiah and Joel. So tell me, why do you think Obadiah and Joel were given to the people of Israel at this point in history now that we've studied it? What do you think would be the message? Think of what, what was the message in Obadiah. About Edom, concerning Edom. And what, did, what was the message about Edom? Okay, right. Okay, so it talked about a time of judgment for Edom. And did it say why Edom was going to be judged in, in uh, Obadiah? Because of their treatment against Jacob. Now, why would that message be dropped in at this point in history? That's interesting, right? What do you think that the point to that was? Because after all, it was Israel that was sinning. And yet God sends a prophet in to say, I'm going to judge those nations who are coming against you. Why would he do that? Yeah, it's kind of a good question, right? What would be his point in doing that? At this point in history, with their having done all the evil that they're doing. Okay. Okay, so... We, especially having just studied covenant ourselves in this class, we know that in covenant, God has an obligation to his people because of that covenant. Do the people have an obligation to their God? Absolutely. Now, um, had they been keeping their obligation? No. And yet, what is God saying to them in Obadiah? I'm going to judge those who come against you right? And because of the evil that they are doing against you, I will judge that. 
What is that saying? What is the underlying message in that then to them? If they're sitting in the midst of being themselves um, in, a, in a real bad, what is the thing that's going on with um, Israel at that time with Obadiah? Do you remember? Let's go back and take a look because we need to refresh our memories a little bit. Yeah, Obadiah. I want to pull the whole thing in here this morning, guys, because... It looks to me like what has been going on with, with uh, concern in the historical time frame of that event, of the writing of Obadiah, what apparently had been going on with this nation Edom and, and uh, Judah, or Israel. It's an assumption, I'm assuming, but it's a pretty obvious assumption. Yeah. Now, can you guys recall any kinds of battles that have been taking place when we were studying the kings and prophets in these, this first part of this map that we have from Rehoboam all the way up to the writing of Obadiah? Have there been um, wars and enemies coming in and out of Israel? And ha have there been any has there been anything going on that would indicate that these could be things that he's speaking to at that moment through Obadiah? Do you think Obadiah's message was relevant to them? Did they, did they comprehend what was he was saying? Or was this all about something that was coming way in the future? That Okay. And so when he makes this prophecy to them, it's not like he's snatching something out of thin air and throwing it at them. Like, and they're like going, what is he talking about, Right. He, they, the people understood that what God was talking about because they were ex apparently understanding and experiencing these kinds of persecutions and these kinds of wars and these kind of uh, bad treatments by, by Edom at that time in history. And so God speaks to them. Now, what is in the book of Joel, what's going on with uh, Judah at that time in history? What happened in chapter 1 of Joel? The locust had come upon the land. Now, what was the, the locust about? What, were, what was the locust doing to their land? And what was the result of the, the locust coming on their land? Complete destruction. And what, what was God's message to them in Joel? Open up your observation worksheet to Joel chapter 1. What does God tell them in verses 1 to 3? Right. Why is that? Why should the next generations know about this plague of locusts? Okay, now what did God say he was going to do that they would... Okay, very good. When you get to Joel um, chapter 1 toward the end in verse 16, there's that, that word at the beginning, 16, that says, has not. And I think that really does kind of say it all. It's a very small little statement, but it needs to be, I think, emphasized in your 
observation worksheet and in your Bibles as well, because I really think that little two, two words right there kind of sums up everything that's going on in this first chapter, and that is he's telling them, this locust plague has come upon you, and it's come upon you because of the Lord's doing. This is God's land. It's been invaded. Should God's land have ever been invaded by locusts? It does, what does that say to the world around who's looking at a nation who's supposed to be God's people? When they look at the land where God's people are living and dwelling, and there's this devastation falling upon it. What's the message in that to the world? What, what are they saying? How would that make the people of the world think about the God of Israel? Yeah. It would be, okay, that there's either an abandonment or that God's impotent or incapable of handling the locusts and keeping them back, right? But the reality is this, when God speaks of them, um, he talks about them as being an uh, army. Whose army are they? God's army. So what does that tell you about the locusts coming upon the land? Who sent them? The Lord did. So if this is the Lord's doing, and he's sending it upon his own people, right? And then God comes to verse 16 in this, and he says, has not, and then he goes on and, uh, and continues to elaborate on what they've lost. And so what is his point about the locusts being on the land in that day? It's his punishment. That's exact. This is judgment from the Lord. That's the message in chapter one. Although he doesn't directly just, I mean, to me, it could be one sentence. God sent locusts to punish Israel for their, for their breaking of covenant with God. I mean, that would be, you could almost use that as a complete uh, uh, synopsis of what exactly is going on in chapter one. So since God has done that, and he says that, has not God done that? Then in the middle there, he tells him in 13 through 14, what does he want them to do in response to understanding that this is God's judgment? He wants them to cry out to the Lord. I think in verse 11, I love that. Be ashamed. You know, I love that because that I, it makes me think of when I was a little girl and the things that my mother would say to me that always got my attention and turned me. You know, when she would kind of point her finger at me and say, shame on you. And you just shrink to about two inches high and your heart sinks to your feet. And you feel, even just saying that out loud now, doesn't that make a lot of you just go, ooh. You know, kind of, it just brings back a thought in your memory. This is what God was saying to Israel. Shame on you. Shame on you that you are not doing and living up to what you're supposed to be for me as a people. You're on, you, are, you are representing me. You are my people. What are you saying to the world about who I am and about what our relationship is like and what relationship with God is like when you behave the way you all have been behaving as in this kingdom? The kings were the leaders of the people. They set the standard and the mode. They were also the ones that imposed the laws that either allowed or forbid things from occurring. So leaders that are chosen by these people and, and put into these positions of leadership, they have an, uh, an ominous responsibility before God. They do bear a greater burden of making sure that people stay in line with what they're supposed to do. And how are they doing? 
Not so good, right? So this message that comes from both Obadiah and Joel to a people who are living in sin, God is saying to them, return to me, be ashamed of what you've been doing, gird yourselves with sackcloth, come before me in a solemn assembly, cry out to the Lord. What does God promise them? What will he do if they would do that? He, he, he would restore them. He would, he would forgive them. There would be deliverance. We see this as the book goes on. So now what's interesting is he, he takes uh, chapter 1. Now, how does chapter 1 then relate to the rest of the book? What is the point of chapter 1 in relationship to 2 and 3? Yeah. In chapter 1, basically, he is telling them, wake up and cry out to the Lord. Has not God done for Israel and to Israel exactly as he has said, right? So if God speaks a word, will he not do it? Yes. Okay, so in that case then, when God then goes on to give a prophetic word about the end of the age, about a day called the day of the Lord, then when he says, this is what I'm going to do, what should Israel do at this point? What should we do at this point? Wow. I mean, really, if God has already proven himself faithful to his word, even in judgment against his own, now that, that I don't know, what do you think? How does that relate to us? Because this is so easy to, to relegate it to Israel and to a distant thing and to someone else. But if you think about this in our own lives, and, and we can pull in a lot of New Testament passages that are written directly to the churches about behavior and how we're to live and what we're to do and not to do. These are all about the sanctification of, of our life. Israel was to walk as a sanctified people before God, set apart unto him, right? Are we to do the same? If God has given a warning in the scriptures that this is, what, this is what I will do, this is what I expect from you, this is how I want you to live because you're bearing my name, then when we look at the, the way we, the church, are living today, what should we be doing at this point? How do you think, how do you think it should affect our churches today and for us individually? We do. Are, are there things that you see in our churches today that you just shake your head? Do you do, or so-called churches. Often there's also some churches that bear the name of Christianity, and yet are they? Some of them are, have doctrines in their churches that they're, that they're fundamentally a big part of who they are as a, as a group, and yet they are not, they are not biblical doctrines. Um, I had a conversation just yesterday with someone about this, and they were talking about something that was going on in their church and how they totally, you know, disagreed with this, these things. I said, well, you know, this is the problem. Churches are made up of people. But we do need to hold our, our leaders accountable, do we not? Do you think if the nations of Israel, the peoples of Israel, had rose up, for instance, in the north, these northern king or kingdom under Jeroboam and those kings that followed, had the people rose up and demanded a righteous leader, do you think it would have changed the course of events? 
What does God say about how he will or will not respond to people who repent? Can you remember? Yeah. Okay, so he's compassionate and, and forgiving. Um, I, I, there was one verse that says, Does, will God not relent? Or what? It, maybe God will relent, right? Maybe he won't bring this calamity if, you know, of course the if is a big if, right? But the reality is, what does God desire? Isn't that amazing? Jeroboam foregoed that, or what do you call it? He he just, yeah, it was, yeah, he just let that one go by because he refused to do so. Instead of bowing to God and saying, wow, God is telling me that I could be like David, a kingdom forever. This is a promise that he's giving and offering to me. And yet, what does Jeroboam do? Immediately, the very next verse, he goes up to the north and he builds uh, altars of worship to these calves in Bethel and Dan. Unbelie- Dan and Bethel. I got them backwards, sorry. Um, uh, it kind of blows my mind. The church today has got a lot of things going on. I, I was watching the news. I saw some things that are going on uh, in uh, another denomination where they're having almost an abandonment by all of their leaders and they're saying, well, we're going to walk out and we're going to do this and we're going to do that. And it's all because of this massive cover-up and of sin that's going on in this particular denomination. What is it that, um, what is it that God would have for his people in regards to a situation where you know there's sin going on and you and you you understand that it's there what does he want for us to do how many of us are willing to speak up every one of you are sitting here quiet right now <laughs> i mean i have no advocates in here i can tell there's there's no there's no rioters <laughs> we need we need to get pickets uh, signs and start marching the halls of our churches and start demanding righteous living before God for God's people. The scriptures are very clear when it says that that judgment begins at the household of, of God. When you look at what you see historically um, in, in the kings and prophets study, we've looked at not only Israel, but we've also looked at some of these other kingdoms around, such as Edom and Obadiah. Um, and we see that these other nations are not walking with God, and they're very aggressive against the people of God, right? Historically, has that remained to be true today? The nations on the whole are against Christianity, because that's our New Testament um, God worship. Um, but even also still, they remain hostile towards whom? Israel and the Jews. Now, can that stand? What is the problem with people who go against Israel? There you go. Because all the way back to Genesis chapter 12, where, where God d- declared, I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. I think our church today does not preach enough that we need to be advocates for and on behalf of Israel. Not that we approve of all the things that Israel does, right? 
but that we are people who will stand behind Israel. Why? Yeah. Ultimately, when you say Israel, your mind immediately goes, those are the people of God, right? And if, in fact, those people were created by God to be his servants in the world and to be his, his light in the world. And so if a person goes against Israel, who are they actually going against? God. So in these passages where God says, and, um, for, your, for their violence against Jacob, I will do these things back to them, right? What is it that God is actually doing? Is he, is he protecting Israel because Israel is so special and so good and so right? What have we seen? Are they so good and perfect and honoring of him? There you go. So it's really, if you defy Israel, if you speak against Israel, if you are hard-hearted towards Israel, if you're not compassionate even towards Israel, if you're not praying for Israel, even though Israel may not be doing everything right, it's our responsibility to, do, to pray for her because why? She's God's people, and if we go against her, we are actually going against the Lord. Okay? So that kind of sets the big picture of what's going on in the kings and the prophets study. We have a nation who was chosen to be his glory for the world to bring people into salvation. They are failing him miserably. Now, is he, is he giving justice? Oh, I don't have it up there. Is he giving justice in, in, an, um, in an impartial way when it, when it comes to dealing out justice? We see in, in Obadiah, he's going to come against Edom right? And everybody's like, well, he's picking on poor Edom. Well, certainly they deserve it, right, by the things that we've looked at. But is that the only nation that he is going to come against? What about his own people, Israel? Does he leave them unpunished? Yeah. For a starter, we enter into the book of Joel, and we see God bringing the locusts against the land. What were some other things that God had done previously to this against Israel in judging her? There you go. There were a lot of nations that kept coming in and invading and, and taking her lands. Do you remember there were some of them that were it talked about them even coming all the way into to Jerusalem itself, entering into the house and the treasuries of the Lord, and doing what with those things? Carrying them away, carrying them off into their own lands. So when we read these cross-references that we've looked at this week, and it says that because you have done this to me, right? And what were some of the things that they had done to him? Let's look. Let's go back and look at that. This is part of your homework for this, this week. The... Um, God's purpose in judging the nations. This was on day four, page 58. In Joel 3, he lays it out what God, why God is going to judge the nations in general. And then he starts naming some specific ones like Tyre and Sidon and Philistia, the Philistines, uh, the land of the Philistines. Um, what does he tell us are some of the things that they did? You should have a list on that. 
Wow. So slave slave marketing of their of the children of Israel themselves, okay? Isn't that amazing? I, I did that particular verse, they have divided up my land. Did that kind of stand out to you? What do we see in current history yet still today doing going on? Trying to divide up the land. At one point in history, in 1948, we, we brought the Jews and put them back on their land and almost immediately became a tug-of-war then between them and a group called the Palestinians. And the Palestinians were, were, have been making a claim that they have a claim to this land, right? And yet, what do we know about the Palestinians? Was there a Palestinian state on that land? In all those years that the land set empty, had any other people, Palestinian or otherwise, had any other nation come in, seized the land, and established a nation upon it? Had they? Absolutely not. There was no capital city. There was no state by name. There were no presidents or, or designated leaders. They had not built cities upon that. As a matter of fact, what was the land like when Israel went back on her land in 1948? It really was desolate. Um, they talked about one of the areas they even had to, it had the little bit of water that was there. It was mosquito infested. They had to bulldoze it in to cover it up and to, in order to stamp out malaria that was a, a problem for them in that particular area. They've come up with, though, all these innovative things. What has Israel done since 1948? They've only been back on their land as of this last Monday, week ago, 70 years that's, that's remarkable. 70 years back on their land. What do we see Israel to be like today? Beautiful, lush, filled with cities, streets, government, organization, a president, a, a body of leaders underneath them. It, it is an, would you call that an established nation put back on its feet? Um, we don't, we've not really talked about some of the real supernatural things that God did in order to bring this about. But now that they're back on the land, are, are people coming in now and they are saying, divide the land up. We want this possession here. We want this possession there. Have any of you been to Israel? Okay, when you went there, did you notice a distinct difference when you went into the cities that were Palestinian controlled and the ones, what was your impression The Palestinians, yes. There you go. Right. So it's almost like they would go in and, and take possession and say, this is ours, and yet they weren't really taking ownership in a prideful way. There was no sense of dignity in it or, or any sense of this is our land and we're going to make something glorious out of it. They would simply, like you said, it was squalor. And when you, and you entered, the, literally for me, I felt an oppressive heaviness when I would walk into those areas. And you're right, I would feel a little fearful. Um, not that I really feared for my life per se, but there was just a sense of uneasiness in my spirit. And I do think it was a spiritual warfare thing that goes on. And as you entered into the areas where there was, there was the Palestinian control, it, it, there was... Um, just a sense of hopelessness and emptiness and deadness. And when you stepped out of that, though, I'm not kidding you, it, the way I described it in one of my journals that, uh, when I was 
documenting all this in, by pictures. Um, it was like putting on a pair of sunshades and then taking them off. The sunshades on in the Palestinian-controlled cities like Cana, for instance, or Bethlehem, and it was darkness, and it, was, it, it just felt gloomy and heavy. And then when you walked out, you took your glasses off, and it was like, whoo, everything was light and clean and bright, and your, ho your whole countenance just kind of lifted. So this, to me, is one of those testimonies of God and his people and how God does bless the Israel people and, and these, this struggle, this tug of war that's been going on for, for, forever. But interesting the Palestinians who so desperately want to lay claim to these places today never did anything about it all those thousands of all that that thousand years or two thousand years it was sitting empty and it was a desolate place and it was a desert and it was a wilderness and it had only thing that they have any uh, connection to it at all is it was a, a it was a place for the uh, transient people they would come through through it and pass through it the uh, what do you call them the nomads would come through but they never settled the land right so when God says about his purpose in judging them he says it's because they have divided up my land and then he's he goes on to say what else what else have they done Okay, isn't this interesting how above here he talks about my people. It seems to me like the word my should be there, right? But it isn't. He, he makes a transfer from being, he t he, they took their silver, they, he, they took their gold, they took their precious treasures and put them into their own temples. He doesn't say it that way. He says, since you have taken my silver... And you have taken my gold, and you have brought my precious treasures into your temples. Therefore, nations, I am going to judge you. Now, what, is, what does that take you back to? Why does God call their, the attack on them really an attack on him? Let's go to Matthew 25, because this is a really good one. Matthew 25, you guys did this. Let's see, which day was that? I didn't mark it. No, yeah, page 61. Yay. <laughs> so glad I did that. Okay. What happens in Matthew 25? I can't hear. I'm sorry. There you go. This is a, this is a, uh, a um, prophetic statement, an utterance. This is not a parable. Because, you know, although I guess it could be a parable, it's more imagery to me. It's more about he's using something that they can relate to, and he's calling one thing another. It, it's, this, um, it, it's a use of the language in order to give an explanation about something spiritual by giving it a physical understanding that they can relate to. But how does it open in verse 31? When is this going to actually take place, this separating of sheep and goats? Yeah, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne 
And all the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them one from the other as the sheep separates the sheep from the goats, and he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Now, who are the sheep and who are the goats? Okay. The sheep are, according to verse 37, the righteous. Uh, You could very easily translate the believers, right? Okay. And then the goats... The accursed ones. Very good. You did a good job on that. Okay, so when he, he gives this um, declaration about what he's going to do with the sheep and the goats, now he's going to separate them. And when he, t- he talks about the righteous, he says that um, he speaks about the righteous. What makes the righteous righteous? According to this text, I know, yes, you're right, faith does do that. But what he's speaking about here is something that's real specific. That's right. He actually concludes at the end because they come back to him, Lord, how did we do this? He says, you... He, sa- he says, I was hungry, you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, you invited me in. When was, Jesus, when was God on earth that the people gave him something to eat and, and did well? And by the way, even when Jesus was on this earth, did they do any of that for him? Most of them were doing what? Seeking to kill him. <laughs> they were chasing him from city to city, and he was on the run, right? He didn't even have a, a, a place to lay his head, he says. So, but he says that th- there were those of you whom I am calling the righteous. He said, you fed me. You gave me something to drink. You invited me in when I was a stranger. You clothed me when I was sick. Why? When, he, when they asked the question, how did we do that for you, Lord? There you go. Verse 40, the king will answer and say to them, truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these, these Jewish brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. Yes. Okay, good question. When the Son of Man comes, so when does the Son of Man come? Let's look at our timeline over here, and let's put this in on the board for us. When does the Son of Man come in his glory? We know that he's come the first time as the sacrifice, right? He came, he he died at the cross, was resurrected, And now we're talking about a day that's coming in the future, a day called the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord begins at the beginning of a time that right here, it's not on the the homework that we've done, but I'm just going to give you a little preemptive here on this. This is called Daniel's third, uh, whoops, that's dried out. I don't know if it'll come back or not. I'll leave it there. This is called Daniel's 70th week. That one's dried out. Wow. I get so frustrated with my markers. Can't find one that'll stay wet. Okay. This one's not real good, but it'll work. Daniel's 70th week. Later, we're going to find out that a week is seven years. It it equates to uh, seven years. Sorry. Just so you know that. And it's going to cover this entire period here. 
right? And when in that seven-year period, when does Jesus come? Those of you who know, at the very end, in the very last part of that seven years, what is the purpose of the seven years? There's tribulation going on. And do you know what the work of God is during that time? What is God doing during that time? He's, ju- he's, he's, he's pouring out some judgments. Now, the first three and a half years is not actually called judgment, right? We've, for those of us who have studied it, we know that the first three and a half years is, is called uh, birth pangs. And it's, and it's God working. And it seems horrific. Earthquakes and... Um, blood in the oceans and the, the, the grass is burning up, but there's going to be all kinds of things you're going to study about when we go there. But it's, that part is not actually called judgment. What it, but what is it then? What do you think God is doing at that point and up to that point? He's trying to wait. Does it sound like what he says in, in one of these uh, 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 chapters that we just looked at with Obadiah and Joel where he says, wake up, you know, I'm sending out the alarm. This is your wake up call. It it's really is an alarm time. It's a waking up time. It's a time that he's saying, I want to get your attention. But the last uh, three and a half years of that time frame is that time called the tribulation. So we're going to write tribulation in here, and we're going to mark it specifically so that you see this. This time right here is called tribulation. Okay, and it goes all the way to the end here in those three and a half years. During that tribulation, then, when Jesus returns, is after he's done with that tribulation. The tribulation is the pouring out of the wrath of God upon man. That's when God begins to actually really judge. He is, at this point in history, although it, we haven't studied it because we're not, you know, we're not doing that, but at this, at this point, we, we know here Israel is going to go into um, hiding, Now, we did look at Matthew 24, though. Do you guys remember what Matthew 24 says? Go back and look at Matthew 24. This is where we're going to see where this fits on our timeline. Starting in verse 15 of Matthew 24, he's talking, you can see in 27, you've marked the coming of the Son of Man, and you marked it again in verse 30, right, when the Son of Man is coming. So we know this is the time frame of when the Son of Man is going to come. But just before his coming, it says in verse 15, what happens? What's going to happen? Something significant is going to happen. There's going to be a significant event. It's called the abomination of desolation. What is Israel supposed to do when they see that abomination of, of desolation? And by the way, who's, who, who is quoted in, the, in that passage? Who's the prophet that's mentioned? Daniel. It's the, the abomination of desolation spoken of through Daniel the prophet. And when you see this abomination of desolation, what is Israel and what is all Ju- Judea supposed to do? They are to flee. And where are they to flee to? The wilderness, yes, to Edom. <laughs> Interesting, isn't it? To a place, a place called Basra or to a place called um, Petra, we call it today. And I passed around a book last week for you to look at that. So here we go. Israel flees. This is Matthew 24, 15. 
So that's going to happen right here in the middle of this Daniel's 70th week. This now begins at this point, the pouring out of the bowls of the wrath of God. Okay, the wrath of God begins to be pouring out. I'm preempting a little bit, but most of you will forget half this anyway. But when we get there, we will study it. Well, I'm not saying that in a negative way, but it's just so, so I know, it's just so much. And honestly, for people who have even studied it, sometimes you go, oh, yeah, I forgot about that. You know, you kind of scratch your head and you're shaking those cobwebs. It's been several years since we studied this. So going back and restudying it will help shake it back up and it'll really help to hammer it in a little bit harder into a hard 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 set mode in your brain where you'll be able to recall it really well. But what we know is Israel flees in Matthew 24, according to that Matthew 24. And it says, and and when she has uh, fled into the wilderness, then what is going to happen in verse, starting in verse 21, then there will be a great tribulation. That's why we call this tribulation here, but not all of it. This is, although a lot of people call the whole seven weeks the tribulation, I even sometimes do just out of convenience because people know it that way. But technically, when you study it, you're going to find out that the only part of it that's tribulation, called tribulation, is the last three and a half years when the bowls are being poured out. But in here, it calls it the great tribulation. When Israel will flee, she's in, in hiding. Yes. No, no. Yep. Nope, we should. As a matter of fact, tell me, what are some of the the events, just in a big picture, what are the events that's taking place here? If this is the pouring out of the bowls, it's the bowls of wrath, what's going on over here? We have seven seals and seven trumpets. Right? No, these are not considered judgments. By the way, um, these are just these are seals and bowls, and the, the and they are horrific things that are taking place on the earth. When when you study it, sure sounds like judgment, and you can see why people would be confused about it because when you're having earthquakes and um, and fires and grass burning up and the produce of the land being destroyed, basically, and the land itself being destroyed and the waters being polluted with blood, of all things. Um, that may be because of wars. I'm wondering about that, too. I remember studying about Izmir at one time. Remember I told you about a, uh, a thing where they had, had a genocide against the Christians in Izmir. And the, out there in the bay of, Iz, of Izmir, where I lived, I lived right there on that cul-de-sac area where it was. But they, the bodies got so deep in the water out there as they were trying to flee from the fire in that day that the, the, the ships couldn't even get in because the bodies were so deep that they, that they were stopping the ships from coming in. They could only sit at a distance and look and see the people fleeing into the water to escape the fire. And most of them were drowned and dying of their, of their, you know, issues. And the, but the ships could not even get in to, to protect them. I think about that and the idea of the waters being, one-third of the waters turning to blood, you know, and I'm thinking, how could the, the, that be a reality? Well, if there's wars and the peoples are being pushed out into the waters and having to die, like they did in that Izmir 
uh, picture in my mind, I'm thinking, I can see how that could be happening. Now, there could also be some literal blood in the water that God brings about some, in some supernatural way. I don't know. But I'm just saying that I can see the literalness of this through that one example that I've, I've read in history. So we have seals and trumpets, the bowl. So Israel flees, Matthew 24, 15, mid-trib, we call it. Mid-trib, right in the middle of the tribulation. You know, there's three kinds of uh, views about when the rapture of the church will happen, which is pre-trib, mid-trib, or at the end, post, right? And then there's my husband's idea. He calls it pan-trib. <laughs> It'll all pan out in the end. <laughs> No. Okay. <laughs> I'm a pre-tribber myself. However, okay, so seals and trumpets are going to be occurring before, but the, the bowls of wrath begin to pour out. That's called the Great Tribulation. That's what we looked at in Matthew 25 or 24 this week. He says a Great Tribulation, and unless those days have been cut short, no life would have been saved. For the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then, if anyone says to you, behold, here is the Christ, or there he is. Do not believe them. So now what does that tell you in a subliminal way here about what's going on during this time frame concerning people? The word there is, if you hear about the Christ, that the Christ has come, don't believe him. So what does that tell you is going on here? <coughs> there are some believers, and there are some who are still seeking maybe God, or haven't come quite to repentance yet, but, but he's warning them in this scripture, don't believe them, because there is going to be a very specific process of things that are going to happen before Jesus comes, and he says, these things will happen, and if you hear about the Christ, don't believe him, and then he goes on, and he takes them to the next step, and he says, um, uh, so if you say to him, behold, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. Behold, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe them. For just as the lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, so will the coming of the Son of, the son of Man be. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will, will gather. But immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from the sky, the powers of the heavens will be shaken, and then the Son of Man will appear. So he's saying, after the days of those tribulations... So what does that tell you will have been completed? How many bowls are there? There are seven, just like there's seven seals and seven trumpets, there are seven bowls. And he's saying after the days of those, so where does that put it? Right here at the very end. This is when Jesus comes. Cool, right? This is a pretty good lesson, I think. She almost gives you a, a pretty good picture. Even if you never studied the Revelation course, you could get a pretty good set out of what's going on here once you timeline it. Now, if you don't do a timeline like this and set things in, you would never be able to figure it out. I don't think clearly in your mind, you'd still have a lot of questions. But once you start timelining it, you're like, oh, are you feeling like you kind of got your bearings at this point? You're like, okay. Okay, I kind of got my arms wrapped around the progression. Carol, you got one thing, you know, clarified for you. These, the, the bowls of wrath, this is the great tribulation. That's when these, the, the events are going to be taking place. And he has just told them they are to flee before these bowls of wrath 
come, come forth. So up to that point, where is, where is Israel and others? They're living upon the earth. They're, they're still, you know, we're not in a passage there, but they're living literally believing they are in safety and everything's fine. There's going to be global things going on, but apparently they're not getting the picture that this is God. How does that relate to what you saw in Joel chapter 1? What happened in Joel chapter 1? What had come upon their land? The locust, this devastation and this, this destruction, right? R- robbing them of the fruit of the land and, and there had been no rain and therefore, you know, water had to be extremely scarce. Water is scarce enough in Israel. But in, in this day, the rains had been, had been withheld by, held by God and the land had stopped producing. They didn't even have enough for them to go and give their sacrifices to the Lord. There wasn't enough produce yet, yet to do it, right? And so what you know then is God is speaking to, uh, uh, through Obadiah and then through Joel, and he, he is saying about them, there's going to be a day coming of what? What's coming? Judgment. When you see it, okay, I'm going to put over here a nice big eyeball. When you see judgment, when you see uh, ra- uh, when you see um, devastation, when you see um, what would be another way of putting it besides de- the devastations of the land? Okay, there you go. This, when you see the things I've told you, has God not said? So when you see that, and that was, has God not said, what verse was that? That was, jo- that was uh, Joel 1, 16, right? Yeah, Joel 1, 16. I'm just going to put this on here. Joel 1, 16. Has God not said, has not he done this? Do you not see it? Are you not witnessing these things? He's telling us right now in scriptures, you and I, and the whole world, he's warning them of this day that's coming. And when you stop and look, you should look around and what should be your response? What was his call to them in Joel chapter one? What did he want them to do? To repent, to cry out to the Lord, to, to be ashamed, to, you know, come to him in sackcloth and weeping. And, and so consider these days here as the warning shot. You've ever heard of a warning shot? When someone shoots in the air and says, stop. And if you don't stop, what happens? You get shot. <laughs> you get the bullet in the body rather than the bullet in the air. Here, God is shooting off a warning sign. So you could actually call this warning. It doesn't seem like warning, but it is warning. Because the real day of devastation is coming yet. And he's telling them it's going to be what kind of a day? What does Joel tell us in Joel 2 about that day? That is an amazing statement. When you think about what's going on with them in these days right here, they are having this horrible time, right? In the days of Joel with the locust. 
and they think things are tough, and you know they are. You know they've got babies that are going hungry. They've got animals that are dying because of no water and no, no grass to eat. They, they are literally at their end, and yet God says to them at this time in history, you ain't seen nothing yet, baby. This day is coming. I want you to know that. This, there is a day yet coming. It's a day like you've never seen. It's a day that has never happened before, and there's nothing like it after. And this, I'm warning you, this day is coming. Has not God said he will do and he will speak it and he will do it. So concerning these things of, of, the, of the word of God, he's telling them, I want you to repent. I want you to come back to me. I want you to consider seriously the consequence of your, of your sinful life, of your misbehavior, of your breaking of covenant, of your walking away from me, of your denying who I am. And I want you to understand there is a day of judgment coming. That's pretty serious, isn't it? When you get on a timeline like that, it starts to be uh, pretty profound. So you can see then why Joel and Obadiah have been placed at this point in history. How far out are we from God to begin to do more, yet more, um, warnings to them and, and even some, some temporary types of judgments. What happens to the northern king, kingdom in 722? They go into their captivity into Assyria and are never really seen again, right? What about the, north, or the southern kingdom? When do they go? Huh? A little bit later. 605 BC, they go into Babylon. Right? Actually, there's a, a time period of about 13 years that there's three sieges that finally takes the full, fullness of Judah and Jerusalem and takes it into captivity. They utterly destroy the temple at that time. They take them into their Babylonian captivity, and there we are in the book of Daniel. Right? Daniel starts up, and we get to go into Daniel and get to read all kinds of things about the people and what's going on and how God eventually will bring them back to their land again. But this, is this it? Is 605, is 722, is that the devastation of the great day of God? And yet how horrible was that for those people? And God, when he gave them their land, what had he promised them? He would be their God. They would be his people. He would bless them if they would, what? Obey, but he would do what? Curse them if they disobeyed. And so here we have a time in history that's future yet. By One of them is by about 100 years. The other one is by about 300, it looks like, or 100, two and a half, 250, something like that, years later, right? That they will actually go into theirs. But there is more judgment that goes upon the, that comes upon them on the earth that's horrific. But really, what are they? They're warnings. These are days of warnings. Warning. God does what he says. Warning. God does what he says. Right? Yes. Okay. Kings and Prophets, part five. <laughs> and we're not there yet. <laughs> It'd be very interesting, won't it be, to... They take it to the high priest. What do they do? 
Good questions. I don't know, because we haven't studied it yet. We're going to do those next. I mean, we actually, we have, I think, uh, Jonah is one of the other ones we're going to do also next. We're going to plug him in here. I think this Kings and Prophets study is hard, yes. But I think it's profoundly interesting to see the history and how it's unfolding and to take these warnings from these prophets, which generally we as New Testament Christians exclusively grab them out of history and place them at the end time. And we only look at them from that perspective. But this study says, no, no, no. Those warnings were given to a people at a specific time because of certain things that were going on with them. And they were giving as warning shots into the air to say, pay attention, wake up. You remember that word, wake up, awaken? And it meant a sudden waking up shaking their shoulders and getting them to suddenly go, oh my gosh, what are we doing, right? And I think that um, we don't have to be Israel uh, committing these kind of real overt kinds of sins, but do you think that, that there's still a warning for you and I? Do, do you think there's any kind of a shaking of of us personally in in knowing the things that God is saying here and saying, this is how serious I take my walk with you or your walk with me, I should say, right? As you walk with me, I, there is a sense of responsibility. Covenant taught that to us. Walking with God and having responsibility in our relationship with God is not earning our salvation. Our salvation came by faith through grace. But once you're in, God says, in a covenant, this is what a covenant looks like. In a covenant, you have responsibility to your covenant partner. And God has expectations, just as he had expectations of Israel as a nation. When he put them on the land, he entered into another covenant with them, separate from the Abrahamic covenant, where the land was promised. The, the nation was promised. And God came good on his word, did he not? Did he produce a land and produce a, a nation to live upon the land? Did he allow them to take possession of that land and conquer those nations that were on there in order to possess that land? The nations that were conquered and then displaced by Israel, what were those nations like? Do you remember? Mm -hmm. Well, one of the things, yes. They were giants upon the land, as the spies said. That's right. How long did God actually, from the days he promised Abraham until Israel came in and took that land, how long did God give those nations to repent and turn to him? 430 years. And he prophesied it through Abraham. When he gave the covenant to Abraham, he said, for, for 400 years your people will be in captivity in Egypt. And then I will bring them back to this land. And then he designated the land areas that he would give to them by promise, right? So God, even at that time in history, promised that they would come upon this land, that it would be given to them, and he fulfilled his word to them. And he promised that he would bless them. And, and he said, I will bless those who bless you and curse you, those who curse you. But then when he brought them on the land, he entered in with another covenant. This was a covenant of responsibility on the part of Israel to represent God well, to be his people and to bring him glory. This is why in the book of Ezekiel, which we studied also, we kept seeing God say that one day God was going to vindicate his holy name. Has God vindicated his holy name yet? 
No, he hasn't, not fully. Now, certainly, we see God working through the generations, and we see him doing glorious things. But there's going to come a specific day called the day of the Lord when God will vindicate his holy name. True vindication for God comes when, according to everything we've been looking at. When is his real vindication for his holy name going to come? That's right. And when he does what concerning the world? What will he establish? His own kingdom. When God comes back, when he does for Israel all that he has promised her, and he puts her back on the land and makes her the nation of godly people that he wants them, and he says, all the land will be called holy. It will be holy from this gate to this gate and this gate to this gate. It will all be holy unto the Lord. And when I put my people there, he says, then they will know what? I am the Lord their God that I dwell among them, right? And I will vindicate my holy name. That's when he vindicates his holy name. Um, okay, so let's go on and look at then, time, what time is it? Okay, well, I wish we had more time. Okay, I mean, really, I just, it's so sad not to have enough time. Okay, um, so we see Jesus coming back then at the end of that time. We know then that what, what follows his coming back what are we going to put on the other side of his return? Yes, but what is the big, what is this section here? Millennial. Okay, now spell that for me. Millennial kingdom. Okay. I always get it wrong because I didn't want to do it wrong. Okay, so here we have the millennial kingdom. Does anybody know how long that millennial kingdom lasts for? 1,000 years. Okay, so, okay, let's go back to Matthew. Day five, I think it was. Page 63. The sheep in the, oops, no, I lost it. Yeah. See, I, I turned my page. This is the problem with having so much homework. It's hard to find your, <laughs> your homework. Okay, Matthew. Um, that's not it. Yeah, and mine are out of order, of course. There we go. Okay, so this is... The sheep and the goats. Okay, so we, by according to Matthew 25, we say the Son of Man is going to come in his glory, and then he's going to separate the sheep and the, the goats, correct? So let's do that here. The sheep and the goats are separated. So if he comes here, we know then that underneath here, sheep and goats separated. right? When he comes back. And what is the conclusion to that then? What happens to the goats? The goats are going to go into what? Eternal fire. The goats will go into eternal fire and the sheep... Where do they go? 
into eternal life. Now, that's a technicality. We're going to have to work on that a little bit more. But, but, the, but the end of it is one goes into eternal life, they get to live on, right? The other will go into eternal fire at that time. So that is going to happen after Jesus comes back. It can't happen before. It has to happen after, right? So he comes, he separates the sheep and the goats. And who are the sheep and the goats depictive of? All the people on the earth, whoever is still living at that time, right? Israel and um, the nations as well, as a matter of fact. And, and it says about those people, those people he will separate who are sheep, who are goats. And he says about the sheep, they are the ones who are the righteous. And he says it is those to the extent that you did to the least of these my brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. And he says, you are the ones who, if you lived a sanctified life, living before me, living to please me, living to honor me, in which case you would be honoring Israel, then you are of those who will go into eternal life. Okay? It really actually all history is that way, isn't it? But yeah, when you start putting it here in black and white, and what, what does this show you about God? When you think about how many thousands of years he's been working this plan, you know, when did the plan begin, by the way? From before the foundation of the world. Think about it. God created you and I in this entire world knowing all this. He knows the end from the beginning. He knew our ways. He knew our sin. He knew our history before even one day occurred. This is why God can pronounce the birth of a certain king coming back and doing a certain job that he assigns to them at a certain time in history. It's why he can determine from the womb Esau and Jacob who is the righteous one to pass the bloodline through. The, the responsibility of carrying the, the, the a covenant of grace and of, of um, privilege to the nation of Israel. He chose Jacob over Esau, and it says he hated Esau. What does that mean he hated Esau? Does he hate any human being? Not really. What was it about Esau that he hated? The, the, he was an immoral and godless person. If you are immoral and godless, if you reject me, if you rebel against me, if you revile against me, if you do violence to your brother Jacob, you're doing it to me. Those are the people whom I am coming to judge. And if you think about all that he's done from before the foundation of the world to work up to this point, to the, ultimately to the, to the day of the cross, and now waiting, and yet we're, we're, you know, a thousand years into these days, right? Two thousand years into these days after the cross. And we are still waiting for this day of the Lord to come. What does that tell you about your God? Okay, he's omnipotent, he's faithful, patient. That was the one that came to my mind. I thought, wow, he's patient. The, the thought that, it kind of makes me think of when um, Abraham was bargaining with God about Sodom and Gomorrah, too. How, how many people is it worth it to you to wait 
upon and not destroy this place called Sodom and Gomorrah. And he, he started at 50 and worked his way down, and he says, but for five, I will not destroy it. Apparently, he couldn't even find five. And he brought out Lot and his, uh, his wife and their children, right? And even the wife didn't quite make it out, <laughs> right? She was caught in the judgment of it. Wow. God is patient. God really loves humanity. And the fact that God, if, if God was in the days of Joel to the kingdom of Israel at that time, still on the land of Judah, warning them through a locust plague, I am going to bring judgment against those who defy me and who are disobedient to me, who are godless and unbelieving. That, and he says again later, through the Assyrian captivity. Later, there's other verses that, sh- that say uh, she did not, Judah, did not learn from her sister, right? And she, and, she tend, and she actually went into even worse things than her sister had done. A lot of the concept of God saying they did worse was because what did uh, Judah have that the northern kingdoms didn't have? The temple. And when they, in Judah, began to defy against God and began to re, uh, rebel against God, what were they doing to God's temple? They were literally bringing these statues of other gods and placing them right at the door of God's house. They were, there was such defilement that in Ezekiel it says, then God removed his spirit. He gave them over to judgment of, by the nation of Babylon and then God, and God sent them into their captivity. Again, a warning shot in the air. Babylon was a warning shot. Warning, warning. What you're doing is wrong. What you're doing is defying me. I want you to come back. And they spent 70 years in their captivity to learn their lesson. It's like a timeout for a little kid. You know, go sit in the corner for, you know, five minutes or however, three minutes if they're three, four minutes if they're four, according to the science of this right not in my house (laughs) 15 minutes in the corner I need 15 I need 15 (laughs) right (laughs) and with some kids you have to tie them into the corner to make them stay there but you know and honestly that's about the way it was with Israel they needed to be tied into their captivity by by force because they weren't even learning from their own uh uh chastisement by God. God was, at this point, not pouring out judgment. He was chastising them. And it was a warning sign to them that they were to change their ways, that they were to turn back to God. So that's where this all fits into our bigger plan. Fun. Fun. No. (laughs) It's a little bit kind of scary to think about the fact that, first of all, they weren't learning but second of all, have we, have we today learned any better? What do we see our own churches doing? Do we, do we need some warning signs shot into the air? Do we need to be some of those voices who are like the, the Jeremiah's and the, the Obadiah's and the Joel's? Do we need to be proclaiming in the halls of our churches and amongst the people of God and in our cities to the nations around us Do we need to be proclaiming there's a day coming of judgment? There's only one way to to avoid it. How many? (laughs) 
that the, a lot of the churches actually believe in the literalness of God's word. So are they really fearful in any way of a coming day of judgment when they really think it's all just imagery? And that some churches teach we're living in the days of the kingdom of God. We, we really do conflate uh, righteous truth with the spirituality of the world, and we do so for the sake of political correctness, as we call it today, right? This PC correctness. Yes, everyone to be inclusive and, and, and as one. You know, have you seen those bumper stickers that have the uh, coexist symbol? And it's like we're all supposed to co- Is it possible to coexist with other religions? Of course. Now, see, there's the issue. I think it's really interesting because if you make one statement, then the other side will throw up, yeah, but that means you hate people. No. Just because I'm making a judgment about what's right and what's wrong, and my judgment is based on God's principles, does not mean that I'm hateful or that I don't love people. Actually, if, if, you're, if you have a friend standing on the railroad tracks and there's a train coming... Is it, is it evil or unkind or hateful to say, watch out, there's a train coming, get off the tracks? Is that, is that hateful? No. Is that evil? Yeah. See, for us, it's a reality. This, this right here, you guys, this is the railroad tracks. This is where we're heading. And we have many, many, many people on earth today. As we are in the last days, we are watching many people walking on this little road, right? And they're oblivious to God, and they're oblivious to these truths. They look at all of this as a, as a fictitious parable or a, or a fairy tale story that's written in the Word of God. They don't believe the words of God. There are many Christian churches, they call themselves Christians, who don't even believe in the inerrancy of the Word of God or the factual reality of the Word of God. They teach it as parables or as, as um, uh, imagery. And that, that everything is not concrete. There's nothing that's concrete. They don't take a historical book and say, this is history. This is a historical book. Read it as history, as factual, unless the, the language of it determines otherwise. And the language will tell you. Like when Jesus said, let me tell you a parable. Then you know you're in a parable, right? I mean, or when we have read through a lot of these, there were in, uh, was it chapter one? It says, like, like like. You're just talking about the locust, like, in chapter two. So the like tells you that it's like this, not that. It's not that literal. It's like that. And the likeness of it was, what was the comparison of the locust to be like? Pardon? A mighty army, a literal army that one day was going to come. So in the days of of Joel, there was li- there were literal locusts upon the land, but in chapter two it says there is going to come a mighty army 
in that day. So we know that there's going to be a mighty army, a literal mighty army that are going to, that are somewhat depictive of the locusts, but to what measure? This is going to be greater, worse, far worse than what they experienced in the days of Joel. Nothing like it before, nor, nor after. Okay, now what, let's jump, because we've, we've done a pretty good job, I think, of hammering that down. Let's go look really quickly at our outline for Joel. I'm going to have to really rush. <coughs> let's go through and get it outlined. We may not get to these other passages as, like I'd like to, but... Okay, so Joel, through, uh, the theme for that chapter, what did you title it? <coughs> the chap for chapter three for Joel. Yes, we're going to look at chapter three because that's our last chapter we're doing today. Okay, very good. So I know it's really, I will, I'm going to, I'm going to take what you said and I'm just going to say, I will restore Israel. I will judge the nations. Okay, now verse one really is a standalone statement. It's almost like a conclusion statement to, I'm going to tell you some things that are going to happen, but I'm going to tell you up front the end of the story. I love this guy. He speaks my language. I always want to know the end of the story before I get into it, especially if it's a hard story, if it's a, if, if there's a lot of t tension and drama and action and, you know, and it's really, you feel anxious. I want to know how it's going to end before I watch it because I can't stand to sit through it otherwise. All I'm doing the whole time is going, are they going to be okay? Are they going to be okay? I want to know, are they going to be okay? So what does he tell Israel in verse 1? Yeah, I'm going to restore, I will restore the fortunes of Israel. Now, I think this is interesting if you consider where they are in history. What has just happened to them in chapter 1? Have their fortunes been really devastated at this point? So for him to come in here, for Joel to come in as a prophet at this point in history, or, or shortly even thereafter, I'm, you know, they, they actually say Obadiah and Joel are like back-to-back. -back. One ends in 825, the other starts in 825. These are guesstimations, obviously. However, they're pretty close because of the events that are, are occurring at the time and what they're writing about. So we see then he tells them shortly after or while they're in this day of the locust, he says, I will restore the fortunes of Israel. Just going to let you know that up front, just so you can take a deep breath. Now I'm going to take you through and tell you what's actually going to happen, though. Okay, I will restore them, but he doesn't say but, but he does do a but. Now what we're going to do is I'm going to put on here for you where we're looking at on our timeline. Uh, let me find my right pen. This is literally taking place in the seventh bowl. Everything from here down, he jumps into the seventh bowl. Uh, yes, I will restore the fortunes of, of uh, Israel, but... What does he say in verse 2? 
what will he do? He will gather the nations. For what? For judgment. Okay. And why does he do it? He gives you a why to that as well. Let me see if I can get my observation worksheets here. Try to open this. Why is he going to do this? Yes. On behalf of my people and my inheritance, Israel. And then he goes on to explain whom they have done all these things. Now, he tells them in, so that's in two. And now in three to eight, what does he say? What's he going to do to those nations that he's going to judge? There was a key repeated word in there. Did you mark it? Yes, that word recompense is repeated several times in there, right? Recompense, 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 four times in there. So in three, three through eight, he's talking about a recompense. He says, I will return recompense on their heads. Now, what does it mean to recompense? Did anybody look it up? Yay! <laughs> Say it again. I love that. What one deserves, okay? To, to repay, basically, then, what one deserves. I'm looking for my words. Uh-huh. To retaliate, to take revenge, to give someone what they deserve. That's to recompense. Very good. So in this case, God is saying, I will recompense on their heads, on the nation's heads, for what they have done, right? And then he says in 9 to 15, what's going to happen? What does he tell them to do? Yeah, prepare a war. Now, this is a really interesting statement right here, prepare a war, because you're going to see when you do your study in Revelation, the study of Revelation itself, there's going to be a time when you're studying along about these uh, bowls that are being poured out, and there's going to be a place where you're going to see the kings are going to gather for a war. I'm just going to show it to you because it's fun. It's going to be the sixth bowl. You looked at it in Revelation 19. And he says, prepare for war. You're going to see that in that. Somebody go there and look at that verse. Prepare. Uh, Revelation, was it 19 or was it 16? Now that I put that on there. Uh, no, it's not. Uh, 19 is them coming back. 16, sorry. Revelation 16, that's where all the bowls are. Okay, so go to Revelation 16, see if you can find that verse where you see. 12 to 16, okay, because we looked at it, I knew know that. Okay, so what does it say in there in Revelation 16, 12 to 16? Somebody got their Bible open handy? Can read that for us? I think it's good to plug these things in as much as you can. Go ahead.
Wow. Okay, so we've all heard about Armageddon, right? So here is Har Megiddo. If you've ever been to Israel, did you get to go to Megiddo, Lois, when you went there? Okay. Well, it's not really super impressive, but it's interesting just to go and stand there and think this is the place where they are going to gather in that day. So in the sixth bowl, which is again in the time of this great tribulation, it's just immediately precedes Jesus is coming in the seventh bowl, we are going to see kings gathering to prepare for war. Here we see in Joel, he tells the people, I will restore the fortunes of Israel. And then he tells them in verses 9 to 15, prepare a war. There's going to be a time first of a war. Before I'm able to restore their fortunes, uh, there is going to be a war that's going to occur. And he says, then next, he talks about a location. What is the location that's mentioned there? Coming up to the valley of Jehoshaphat. Who did a study on that one? Anybody do word studies on that? It's very interesting when you do the word study on the on the name Jehoshaphat. Yes, that's what it means. Jehovah has judged. Isn't that an amazing message in the the name of the location. How many times have we talked about even like the name of the Lord so often gives you insight into what he's doing with those people at that time and whatever the scripture is that you're looking at. Well, here we have the name of a location where God is going to gather for war with the people. And what what does it say that is the judge? Jehovah. By just by the name. What what else did you have there, Lisa? Okay, now the valley of decision was the synonym given to it, right? He goes on, so he says Jehoshaphat, the valley of Jehoshaphat, and then he says in the valley of decision. And so the de valley of decision means what? A sharp judgment or a strict decision that's made. Who do you think is the decision maker in this? Is it the individuals at that point that are making a decision whether to follow God or not? At that point, what? We're in judgment. This is God calling them to account for the decision they've already made, right? That they've already rejected him. He's, so this is the Lord's decision. It's, uh, what else did you, did anyone else look it up? Any other insights on it? Right. Now, you know, when we do our, I don't know where my map is, when we do our study on this, we will do a lot of map work about all this. But, it, you know, it, with the land of Israel um, in here, right, and Edom is down here, Jerusalem is up right around in here, up here is Megiddo. And then Jerusalem. And we know that it talks about the valley of decision. He says they will come up. So it's somewhere in here, just by 
logical conclusion of study. You're going to look to see the valley of decision is this, is this time uh, or this place from here to here. There's a place there called Basra, which we, is what we looked at when we did our cross-referencing. It didn't call it Edom, and it didn't call it Petra, although Petra is also there. Basra, Petra is another area na by name. They're all in the same basic area. Edom is the land area that is designated historically as being the land of Edom, which is no more because it's been taken over by who today? Jordan. This is all now Jordan. Because Edom lost it because of what? What they did against their brother, right? God has already, in, in part, judged them for that particular, in that particular way. He's taken their land from them. But today, does e, do the Edomites still exist? And will there still be a, a judgment? What does God say about it? What does Obadiah tell us? In that day, the day of the Lord, what's God going to judge? Who is God going to judge? Of Edom, right? Of Edom. In, in Obadiah, it's, it's judgment against Edom. And it's against Esau, right? And so who is Edom today? What nation do we call them? Palestinians. Thank you. Okay. I just wanted to make sure you pull that forward because you and I have to be able to explain this to people. First of all, they would look at, this is where often the unsaved world would look at you and say, you're nuts. That place doesn't exist. See, the, the Bible's wrong. See, it's a lie. It's all, it's all just fairy tales. But the reality is what we now know from our historical research and study about Edom coming from Esau, becoming Edom, becoming, becoming the Idomians, becoming Palestine, which was a, a, a technical name given to them by Rome, and then later by the, um, uh, who, was, who was the ones that gave it to him later? Um, I've forgotten who. Anyway, uh, it's, it's somewhere in there. But, it's, but it was, first it was Rome that gave the, the, uh, Palestine that name. Go ahead. The, but Megiddo, this is where they gather, and then they come down, right? And they come down to do this invasion. And so it's in here that this battle will take place. And there's a verse that's, that in one of our scriptures that says that the blood, it's in Revelation, the blood will come up to the, the bridle of the horse for a, for a measurement of, I think it was 200 miles, and somebody has done a technical measuring that from Basra up to Jerusalem is 200 miles. It's very interesting. And it's, this is, again, one of those things where you have to put all the little, you have to grab a piece from here and a piece from here and a piece from here and put it all together. And then you get that whole picture. But the Valley of Jehoshaphat, because it's not on a map, and it's not designated clearly to us today. It could have been, however, very well known in, in the days of Israel, particularly in the days of some of these writings, who had just been king just prior to, to this time frame. The king Jehoshaphat. Do you think Jehoshaphat ever had battles that may have occurred in this area here? Could this have been known to them as the, as the Valley of Jehoshaphat for that reason, that maybe he did some some mopping up and some cleaning out. Remember, Edom had kept coming up and coming against Israel. Every time 
Israel was in disobedience to God, God would bring Edom against them, right? And so could it be that this valley was called that because of that king? Possibly. But if not, then symbolically what they did is they seized his name because what does his name mean? Jehovah judges. So this is the valley of Jehovah judges. And it is also called the valley of decision. And whose decision? God's decision. This is the day when Jesus returns. He will, re he will come back. And when he comes back, according to what we looked at in Revelation 19, what does he come back for? What occurs when he returns? First of all, he returns with who? This is Jesus. He returns with who? His armies from heaven, right? And then what, and then what happens after that? He makes war. And so, yes, and it lists all these things. So does that fit with what we see going here? That Jesus is going to come back, and according to Joel, he's going to meet in the valley of Jehoshaphat for the valley of decision, and he says, and I will judge them there. And in Matthew 25, he says, and I will separate the goats from the sheep, Right? And those who are the sheep will go with me into eternal life. And in what we know happens after the coming of Jesus is the millennial kingdom. They are going to enter into this eternal life and into the eternal millennial kingdom with Jesus. And the rest, the goats, into eternal fire. And this is a really great teaching, too, this eternal fire, how, how it's distinguished from the place of Sheol that comes before it. We're not going to have time for that. Okay, so, all right, so we have in Revelation, Jesus returns with his army, and he makes war. And um, it's, okay, so let's see, let's do this. This is 11 to 13. He comes, and he makes war. And then when he comes, uh, there's a day there marked. What is it called in um, 17 and 18. The birds are called to come to something. The great supper of God. <laughs> what does that mean? That's in 17 to 18. What is it? When you look at that on your observation worksheet, you can actually draw a line all the way down to the bottom of that passage. Let's see if I can find my sheets on it. Oh, I wish we had more time. We have so much to cover still. Okay, take verse 17, and if you marked the Great Supper of God, because that's a, a distinctive um, marker, it's, a, it's an event that's going to occur in verse 17, go all the way to verse 20. What happens after Jesus makes war in verse 19 and 20? In verse 21, what does it say that the birds do? Yeah, the birds will be feel, filled with their feasts. So what is the Great Supper of God? What does that mean? 
the birds eating the dead bodies, the carcasses of men who, who are left behind after this war. Wow, I know it's pretty gross to think about. But it's, it, it sends a pretty clear message of the picture of what's going on in that time, right? Of, of uh, the devastation of this great supper of God. So I'm going to put, I'm going to put some little birds here. Okay, so that you can remember that that's great supper of God is speaking about the the um, the valley at the, it's going to be the valley of decision according to that. Oh, did I get that other? Oh, I got that out of the wrong place. I'm sorry. It doesn't say that in Revelation. That I've got it's in the right place. However, <laughs> it goes in the other column. Hold on. Uh, the birds are called. Uh, now we have 19 and 20. We, what happens in 19 and 20 of Revelation 19 is about the beast and the false prophet. Who defeats them? And where do they go? Yeah. The false prophet and the beast they both go into, again, the eternal fire. So this all happens right in this time frame here, right? And this is uh, Revelation uh, 19. Okay? Got it? I know. Do I have to? <laughs> I don't want to quit. Okay, 9 to 15, prepare a war. Let's do 16 and 17. Very quickly, we'll get these last two paragraphs in here. What does God say in 16 and 17 then to comfort them? How does he comfort them? In the midst of this, he's saying, I'm going to gather the nations. There's going to be a, a war. There's going to be recompense on the heads of those who were against me. They are going to prepare for a war in that day. And guess what? I'm going to win. I'm going to win that war. But then how, what does he say in 16 and 17? Because remember, he's writing to them at this time in history, right? What does he say to them right there about while you're in the midst of all this devastation, what does God say? He's a refuge. Now, what has he said in Joel over and over in the midst of telling them about these things that are going to go on, what does he keep doing? He keeps saying to them what? Come back to me. Re return to me. Repent. Uh, be ashamed. Come back to me in, in sackcloth and ashes. So we're seeing him say that to them here while they're in this time of locust and plague. And they're seeing a devastation of their own. They're being warned about this day when a greater time is going to come of devastation. And, but the Lord in the middle of it, he says, the Lord is a refuge for his people. He lets, us, he lets them know, I'm going to be there to take care of you. You are going to come through this. Now, he doesn't say how many. Do you guys remember how many? Zechariah? In, we didn't look at it here, but Zechariah, um, I think it's 13, it talks about they're going to go through this time and how many are going to fall by the sword and, and be purged? Two-thirds. And how many, will, how many will come through? One-third. And they will be purged and purified. They will now be his people, right? And God will pour out his spirit upon them in that day. 
Okay, here we see the close of it then is about Egypt. He names two countries, Egypt and Edom, right? And it contrasts that with Judah. And I kind of changed my last little title here because when you take it back to the to the context of being in the days of the locust, what has happened in the devastation to the people and their land? All the crops have dried up. All the produce of the land has dried up. They ha don't even have anything to give libation offerings, let alone real offerings, right? And so what does he say to them in 18 to 21 that God will do for them? Besides, Egypt and Edom are going to be a waste and a desolate desolation, but, and what is Israel going to have? Yeah, they'll be inhabited forever. But he actually says at the beginning in verse 18, and in that day, what's going to happen? The mountains will what? Drip with sweet wine. Do you think that was a profound message in that moment in Israel for those people? They're in the midst of that locust plague. They haven't had rain forever. They have no wine. All the wine is going to... Remember the chapter before that, that went through all the different kinds of wines that were not even available to him. Not the new wines, not the, the fermented wine. None of the wines were available anymore. It was all gone. And now he's telling them, in that day, you will drip with wine. Judah will drip with sweet wine. Wow, that is an amazing thought for them. And then be inhabited forever. I wish we'd had time to get through Zechariah also. I, I'm sorry we, did, we don't have the time. But my, my instructor over there, my drill instructor, is cutting me off. So I'm going to have to call it a day. Wow, what a great study. Do you feel like, though, that, that now you've got this kind of in the timeline of the kings and the prophets and how this message was so profound to Israel at that time? Is it still profound today? It should be. For you and I, we should be really grabbing hold of these warnings and to know that God is shooting warning signs into the air. When we look around us at the, the catastrophes that are taking place on planet Earth, when we see the, the volcanoes exploding, when we see the, the fires that are breaking out all over, when we see the earthquakes, when we see the floodings, these are all the Lord calling people back to himself. They are warning shots fired in the air to say, warning, warning, warning. I am sending a warning when I sent them to Assyria. I sent a warning when I sent them to Babylon. I am going to send warnings in the seals and the trumpets in that first part of that days of the Lord. But then I am going to sit, settle in judgment at the end. And 